This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. back and thank you for listening to warlord worlds a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist mike grell including the warlord john sable and green arrow i'm ruth and i'm darren and this is a fan podcast we're not affiliated with mike grell and the opinions expressed are just ours we do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of mike grell in most episodes we review and discuss several issues of mike grell's excellent comics the warlord john sable and green arrow but we have something special planned for this episode. We're going to be discussing the Elseworlds one-shot comic, Batman Mask, that was written and illustrated by Mike Grell and published by DC Comics in 1997. But similar to our coverage of the Legion of Superheroes, we know there are fans out there who are more knowledgeable about Batman than we are, so we've invited a couple along to talk about this issue with us. Joining us will be Chris Carnes and Jerry Green from the excellent podcast, Bat Books for Beginners. They'll be providing us with great insights about the title that I know you'll all enjoy. And later in the episode, we'll continue our coverage of The Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 210 and 211. Special guests joining us for that segment are Mike Lane from the Comics in the Golden Age podcast and Dr. Ange from the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, who has some special memories to share about his first comic. So stick around because I know you'll enjoy hearing all of our guests in this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. You'll find his convention schedule, photos, and news updates there. Mike Grell has had a very busy summer. He was a special guest at San Diego Comic-Con to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters. And he was inducted into both the Overstreet Hall of Fame and the Wizard World Hall of Legends. It's terrific to see Mike Grell receiving this recognition from peers. His Overstreet Hall of Fame listing is in the new Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide edition number 47 for 2017-18. to There are two terrific pages dedicated to Mike Grell on pages 1188 and 1189. There is a great summary of his career, including mentions of the Legion of Superheroes, the Warlord, John Sable Freelance, and Green Arrow. The article also features images of several of Mike's gorgeous covers from the Legion of Superheroes, Green Arrow, John Sable, Star Slayer, the Warlord, and James Bond, Permission to Die. And Mike received his Hall of Legends award at Wizard World in Chicago, and he has a picture of the award on his website where you can check it out. Later in the episode, we'll also be sharing news for Mike Grell's appearance at San Diego Comic-Con. Mike has several convention appearances scheduled over the next few months, including a trip to Europe where he'll be appearing at conventions in Belgium and France before returning to the U.S. for conventions in Alabama and Wisconsin. Check out his website for details. You'll also find a loving tribute to his friend and colleague, Len Wein, on his website. As always, pre-orders for convention sketches may be placed through Scott Kress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention, but would really like to get an original drawing, then Scott Kress can help you with that, too. Just make your request at CatskillComics.com. We also recommend the Mike Grell page on Facebook. 
The site features lots of great news and images and is expertly run by Gus Ceballos. And Jeff Messer is now a contributing admin to the page. Mike Grell's variant covers for the current series continue. Recent covers include Green Arrow on a motorcycle racing alongside The Flash for issue 26. Green Arrow standing with Superman on top of the Daily Planet building in a gorgeous sepia tone image for issue 28. A wonderful black and white image of Green Arrow with Batman as bats fly all around for issue 29. And longtime friends Green Arrow and Green Lantern together again on issue 30. These are fantastic images, and we hope everyone is collecting these variant covers to show DC that we all love Mike Grell working on Green Arrow. We enjoy sharing listener feedback, so please write us anytime and join in on the conversations. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of Mike Grell's work. I always enjoy learning what others think about Mike Grell's stories and art. I think it's fun to hear about favorite characters and memories about Mike Grell comics, so send your comments our way. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll include links to those podcasts in our show notes. Batman Mask is a one-shot comic published by DC in 1997, so this is the 20th anniversary of the book. It was written and illustrated by Mike Grell, with colors by Andre Kromoff and letters by John Costanza. And while we're fans of Batman, we know there are many others who know lots more about the character than we do. And there are two gentlemen in particular who host a podcast to help listeners better understand the long and intricate history of the character. So joining us today from the Batman universe are Chris Carnes and Jerry Green, who host the excellent podcast, Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Warlord Worlds. Thank you very much, Darren and Ruth. As a big Mike Grell fan and as a huge fan of all your podcasts, I'm very honored to have been asked with Jerry to be on this episode. Yeah, thanks, Ruth and Darren, for having us. It's such a treat to be doing this with you both. Oh, so happy you're here and looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. This will be fun, and we're looking forward to it. I'm happy to know you are, too. And before we start, why don't you take a moment and tell everyone about your podcast? Well, Jerry and I co-host a podcast called Bad Books for Beginners, which you should be able to find on most any feed where you find your podcasts, and you can also listen via a link on the Batman Universe website, which also has other great podcasts related to Batman and other Batman-related characters. Jerry and I thought it would be a good idea when we were asked to pair up and co-host Bad Books for Beginners to have our own mission statement and announce it at the beginning of every episode so a new listener would know our format from the onset. And our mission statement essentially is... On our podcast, we'll examine a Batman or Batman-related character story or arc, which usually has been collected in a trade paperback form, and we'll provide the historical background of the book, break down the plot and the art, and give you our opinions so you can decide if they're worth a read. We should state that this podcast has been in existence for years and has gone through multiple pairings of hosts, Dustin, the head of the Batman Universe website, tapped Jerry and myself to co-host when the former hosts were unable to continue. We took over as co-hosts on episode number 150 and recording episode number 165 in a couple days. 
I feel very fortunate to have been paired with Jerry. We found we share a lot of the same interests, not just with comic books, but with movies, music, and television as well. That's right. And Chris is really, really knowledgeable about the history of the whole Batman universe, the whole DC universe, really. And I'm a very analytical person and approach it like a fan. So the balance of perspectives, I think, you know, gives different people that have different approaches. It gives them something to think about and a way in to all of these very complicated stories. Well, I really appreciate that introduction from both of you, because one thing that I love about your podcast is that conversation back and forth that the two of you have. It's really great to hear you break apart a story and analyze it and discuss the pros and the cons of it. It's such a great analysis. By the time you get to the end and you give it your rating, I'm always interested in what your rating is going to be, but I really feel like it's been picked apart and examined thoroughly, and I enjoy that. And yet, at the same time, it's such a concise show because your episodes are usually fairly short, and that you can get all of that in in that amount of time is just amazing to me. So I applaud you both. Great show. Thank you. You You two are a great combination. (laughs) I think we are, too. I have a lot of fun with Chris. <laughs> that's that's huge praise coming from the both of you. So I, I uh, really I really thank you very much for that. Well, in addition to that great podcast, you both have also been covering the fun Batman sixty six comics. So tell us where we can find your past and hopefully your future thoughts on that series. Well, thank you very much for asking, Ruth. Batman sixty six will always have a special place in my heart. I love the TV series, and I was very glad that we had a comic book version of this particular Batman. I hope the comic book incarnation is just going on temporary hiatus. I've been very lucky to give my reviews on the entire run of the Batman 66 comic book on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, which is hosted by the very talented Stella and is also part of the Batman Universe host of podcasts. Uh, at the time of this recording, the episode where I reviewed the final issue of Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 is out, and the episode where I review Batman 66 meets The Legend of Superheroes, the last issue for now at least, will be forthcoming. Beyond that, I'm not sure where it'll go, but I've had a great time doing it and trying my hand at imitating William Dozier's Desmond Doomsday narration, <laughs> where I can, <laughs> and using a lot of alliteration when I sign off. <laughs> that's so much fun. Yeah. It is a really great job that you do on that, Chris. I actually think that's how I first got introduced to you guys, is I heard you mm-hmm. reviewing Batman 66 on Stella's great podcast. We know Stella. She's a lovely lady, and we heard you on there. You mentioned your other show, and I was listening the next day, so that's great. So, Jerry, tell us, though, where you cover Batman 66. I do text reviews on thebatmanuniverse.net. So if folks, you know, if you want to go over and take a look, you can go to thebatmanuniverse.net. And I know Chris and I, we both just love that Batman 66 book. The whole series is so much fun, and I, I just can't. I just can't admit to myself that it's really over. So we're both, I think, very hopeful that it'll come back in some kind of incarnation. Uh, I'm the same way. I'm in denial. So (laughs) I will continue to be in denial until they bring it back. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I, I certainly encourage everyone out there to listen to the podcast both Bat Books for Beginners and to listen to Batgirl to Oracle and also to hunt down Jerry's great reviews on the Batman universe. So you won't go wrong with any of those. I agree. Chris and Jerry do a great job summarizing the story arcs and providing background information on the stories and the creators. And I always enjoy that kind of in-depth information. Yeah, very much so. So congratulations to both of you. And now we've set you up. Our audience (laughs) knows to expect great things. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you both tell us everything we need to know about Batman Mask? 
Thank you very much, Darren. I'll start with the background. Batman Mask is an Elseworlds story that was originally cover dated September 1997. In 1997, the standard price of a comic book was $1.99. How about that? Now for some historical context, also cover dated around the same time were titles such as The Amazing Spider-Man, number 426, where Spider-Man fought a female version of Dr. Octopus. Batman number 546, where Batman had to contend with both Etrigan the Demon and the Joker in an issue drawn by Kelly Jones. And Batman fought a villain called Gearhead in Detective Comics number 713. Batman Mask has 64 pages and had a cover price of $6.95. It was released in what is called the Prestige, or Dark Knight format, a term for a square-bound book, still with the height and length of a standard comic book, but with thicker cardstock covers and printed on higher quality paper. DC's first release in this packaging was the 1986 Dark Knight series, hence the term. While the first of DC Comics' Elseworld stories appeared in the late 1980s, it may be fair to say that the concept of this storytelling, with quote, imaginary stories, or alternate realities, had been going on for decades earlier. In the prime of the Silver Age alone in the early 1960s, it would be possible for a cover blurb on Superman to declare the contents would have a, quote, imaginary story. Over in the Batman title, in a semi-recurring feature, Alfred would write his own what-if stories of Batman retiring, a grown Robin becoming Batman 2, and Bruce Wayne Jr. becoming Robin. Some stories, such as Mike W. Barr's Son of the Demon, had been debated on whether the story was canon or an Elseworlds story soon after it was released. Now, in the interest of time so we can get on to our subject, I think I and Slash Wheel will acknowledge that Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which is a personal favorite of mine, released in 1989, in a story set in Victorian times where Batman hunts down Jack the Ripper as the first Elseworlds story where the Elseworlds name was trademarked. In 1991, the story Batman Holy Terror was the first Elseworlds story to include the distinctive Elseworlds logo. The majority of the Elseworlds stories were released in the 1990s and dealt with Batman, Superman, and the Justice League. However, in 1994, all of DC Comics' ongoing titles that had an annual contained Elseworlds stories for their respective characters. Many of the Elseworlds books of that time declared, in Elseworlds, heroes are taken from their usual settings and put in strange times and places, some that have existed, and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. The result is stories that make characters as familiar as yesterday seem as fresh as tomorrow. Some of my other favorite Elseworlds stories are Batman and Captain America, JLA the Nail, Superman and Batman Generations, and of course Batman Mask, the story we're covering today. Superman, The Last Family of Krypton, which was released in 2009, is the most recent. Batman Mask is by Mike Grell and with Andre Krumhoff on colors and separations, and John Costanza was a letterer. I only found a small list of credits with Andre Krumhoff, but longtime comic book fans may recognize John Costanza's name, as he's worked in the industry since the mid-1960s. He's also an illustrator, having worked on the kid-friendly star line of Marvel Comics in the 1980s and DC's Looney Tunes titles in the 1990s. Costanza won the Shazam Award for the Best Letterer in 1974 and the Comic Book Buyer's Guide Fan Award for Best Letterer, back-to-back in the years 1986 and 1987 for his work on The Swamp Thing. I'll forgo into providing background on Mike Rell. If you're a regular listener to this show, you'll find much more of what the Sullivans have provided in the course of the episodes of this podcast than I could ever think to, so I'm going to defer to the expertise. 
I will share a bit of my personal background, though, if you'll allow me. When I first encountered uh, Mike Rowe's work, which when he took over the art chores on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes in number 202, way back in 1974. And I really took to notice how he drew the characters in action in their distinctive facial features, as opposed to the other comic books I was reading. I would then find his work on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and of course the Warlord. Along the way, I'd get Adventure Comics number 435, his first DC work. And in the early 80s, I started to search out all of Mike Grohl's mainstream work using a list from the Overstreet Price Guide while reading and being amazed by his work on John Sable Freelance from First Comics. Batman Mosk isn't the first time Mike Grohl drew a Batman in a full issue of a comic book. I was blown away when Mike Grohl did a brief four-issue stint in 1977 on the Batman title numbers 287 to 290, the first two issues being a two-part story in which Batman battled the Penguin. Mike Rell would also draw Batman in a story and text form in Miss Tree Quarterly No. 1, released in 1990. To my knowledge, Batman Mask has never been reprinted, but copies can usually be found in back issue sections of a well-stocked comic book store and can be found on sale by online vendors for around the cover price or a bit less. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jerry for the summary. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Really interesting stuff. So, okay, let's talk about the story of Batman Mask. Alfred comes down to the 19th century Elseworlds Batcave to tell Bruce that the bat signal calls him. Bruce changes into his bat cloak and cowl and is driven in the back of the bat coach, which Alfred is driving with the horses. <laughs> Harvey Dent and Juliana Sandoval are starring in a ballet version of Poe's Mask of the Red Death. Backstage on opening night, Juliana's understudy, Miss Laura Avian, receives a bouquet of flowers from a mysterious admirer. Understudies don't typically get flowers. This is very strange. Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara have lit the bat signal to get Batman's help with an escapee from the Gotham Jail, who is able to escape by climbing to the rooftops of Gotham City. They need someone with the bat's skills to catch him. Batman gives chase to the criminal who leads him into the opera house. As the two battle, they disturb the performance. Harvey Dent, who's the lead actor and is wearing a skull mask, and his costume is accidentally set on fire by the limelight. His face is badly burned in the blaze. After the performance, Bruce Wayne pays a visit to Miss Avian backstage and invites her to dinner. At dinner, Laura teases Bruce, whose private box was the only empty seat in the house for opening night. They begin to flirt, but Laura is still too upset about Harvey's disfigurement. They go to visit Harvey, and Bruce tells them that he can get him a teaching position, which angers the proud dancer. The ballet reopens a week later with a new male lead. The female lead begins her dance, but a trapdoor opens in the stage, and she plummets to the ground, breaking both her legs. The theater owners believe that the play is cursed, and they discuss shutting it down. However, Bruce Wayne tries to convince them to allow Laura to play the lead. Bruce argues that they should take advantage of the dramatic tragedy of the previous few nights to get attention to the performance. As the two producers walk home, one agrees that they should continue, but the other does not. The one that does not is killed in a tragic beer barrel accident, and maybe it's not so much of an accident after all. The performance will go on with Laura in the lead. 
The disfigured Harvey Dent secretly trains Laura to become a great dancer. Batman watches from the area above the stage. Laura glimpses him in the shadows, and he tells her that he is just the watchman. Laura is spending time with Bruce in stately Wayne Manor after hours. The night before Laura's debut, she is accosted by three robbers in the alleyway. Batman descends on the scene and is able to protect Laura, who faints. She awakens in a bed in the Batcave. Batman tells her that he has been the one watching out for her. He has given her a pearl necklace he says belonged to his mother. The two kiss. She knows that it's Bruce, and she unmasks him. Laura asks what could possibly have driven Bruce to this darkness. He tells her about the death of his parents. Bruce says that there is a dark presence surrounding Laura, and that he'll be near her, protecting her, and she trusts him to keep her safe. Laura has her stage debut. Down the staircase, the traditional skull mask figure of death descends. The two dance, and the man tells her that he has always loved her. It's not the regular dancer at all, but Harvey, who has hung the new male lead dancer by the neck and killed him. Batman arrives and fights Harvey. The disfigured Dent says that Laura will never be happy with Bruce. She belongs with him on the stage. If Harvey can't have Laura, he declares, no one will. He cuts the ropes to a chandelier above her head. Batman swoops down in the last moment to swing Laura off to safety. After the catastrophe, reporters ask Laura about the incident and her relationship with Harvey Dent. She's upset and doesn't want to discuss it. Laura is offered a role with the Ballet Parisienne. She tells Bruce that she loves him and asks him to leave the darkness of his Batcave and come to Paris with her. Bruce refuses. He must be the vengeance of Gotham's injured. And the line between Bruce and Batman is confusingly thin. She exits the Batcave, leaving Bruce's mother's broken pearls behind. The end. So, what do you two think of this story? I was really taken aback by the artwork uh, when when this when this was released, and I think when the project was announced. You sort of have a visualizer trying to think how the artist might render the story, and when you see the finished product and you're, you, it just exceeded your expectations, I think that's the highest praise I can give uh, an endeavor like this. I, I was really taken by even just the color work as well, uh, just everything with the detail in the facial expressions. This was one of Michael's top-notch works, in my opinion. I, I thought, yeah, I love the Elseworld stories too. And this one is just so rich. It resonates with so many things that I love. The Mask of the Red Death, the, the great old silent movie version of the Phantom of the Opera. And I can remember, you know, was it Lon Chaney, I think, coming down the yeah. steps and the Roger Corman film starring Vincent Price. I saw that one at the New York Horror Film Festival where it was screened by Roger Corman. So he had a lot to say about this whole topic. And, and I just love this whole kind of genre and time period. I have to agree with Chris about the art. The art here is not what I traditionally like or I'm attracted to. You know, I usually like colorful things, and this has got that kind of sepia-toned look to it. But every page, you know, when I went to look at some of my favorite pages, I couldn't pick. Every time I opened the book, I was like, wow, look at that. There's just so much detail, and it's just so interesting. It's a really well-put-together book. I loved it. 
I really love hearing the two of you say that. We certainly feel the same way. And it's interesting just hearing you talk. We have more and more things in common all the time from the types of horror films that we even like. I can tell that because I like those sort of gothic horror films. Those are the type that I really love. And I agree with you. The art in this is just wonderful. Of course, I mean, anyone listening knows that we love Mike Grell's art, but Mike Grell really excels here. You know, his pencil work, his line work, his ink work is so amazing and so distinctive. And you see so much of it here. It's, it's just gorgeous. And then I know we were talking just then about the setting and everything. And I love stories set during this time, too. I know you mentioned earlier the Gotham by Gaslight story as well, sort of set around this same period of time. And I would be happy to have an entire series of Batman set during this Victorian era. It would be great. Oh, absolutely. I want more. <laughs> same, Agreed. Same Agreed. time period. Yeah. And, you know, with Batman's inspiration, so much of Batman's inspiration coming from, you know, the investigations of Sherlock Holmes, it's just neat seeing Batman in this John period when Sherlock Holmes was active. So it just seems to be a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. He was getting to do his own detective work. <laughs> That's right. It makes perfect sense. And I really like the costumes as well. Every touch mm. there was to help signify that this was in 1890 Gotham City. So it was great to look at all the small touches and details. And he weaves the story in so well with the Phantom of the Opera. It's not a note-for-note retelling of the Phantom of the Opera, but he cherry-picks just the right scenes for you to know that that's the story that it's an homage to, mm-hmm. but it's, a, it's its own story at the same time. Right. You have the theater, you have the chandelier. And I like all the, you know, you, you have the Batcave that, you know, traditionally has the dinosaur and the penny. And then, you know, this Batcave has other things, but of the time period. And, you know, the Bat coach instead of the, the Batmobile. It's so funny. That was a treat. I love that version. Yeah, this is a special book, I think. What did you two think about the mask instead of the cowl? Well, I thought it worked, and I thought it was very effective. I I, I just thought that was genius, and I'm surprised no one had conceived that before in in such a way. I, I really loved it. You're so right. The whole thing, it's just, it just works so well, you know, with uh, Chief O'Hara being the kind of uh, Bobby. With mutton chops and all, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I had that in my notes as well, yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to ask the two of you as our Batman experts, so how does this origin compare to the traditional Harvey Dent Two-Face origin story? Uh, Well, with Two-Face, it's interesting in researching this a little bit, the traditional origin usually goes that Harvey Dent, sometimes his nickname was Apollo, known for his good, chiseled, handsome, good looks. He was the district attorney, and he brought out uh, someone who to the stand, and before they could get there, a scream rings out, look out, DA, he's throwing acid, and half of his face gets covered in acid, and that's traditionally how it was going to go down in the comic book version. But, interestingly enough, when they retold the origin in Batman number 3, going back to the early 60s, they thought that was too violent. So, when they reprinted that story, in one version of it anyway, they took out the panel where the acid was thrown, and instead, a light breaks, and and basically, due to an accident that way, where a bullet rings out, and he gets glass, and they... They don't use the acid because they thought it was deemed too violent. So <laughs> Must have been a comics code thing. The acid was certainly pre-code, I would think, and then yeah. post-code, they, they, they changed it up a little bit. So there you have it. 
Really interesting. I knew the two of you would be able to give us that background. (laughs) I would add that I really enjoyed the ballet scenes as well and how Mike Grell depicted the dancing. It made me wonder if he knows somebody in ballet because also in John Sable, there's a character whose roommate is a ballet dancer. And I appreciated and was thinking about Laura's last name, Avian, Mm -hmm. uh, because that makes me think of birds and flight. And in one of her costumes, she has feathers on her costume. And it made me also think of her as perhaps being a bit of a bird in a cage who later at the end ends up flying free as she leaves. Wow, That's, that's really neat. That's a great point, too, Ruth, and that's one of the things I had in my notes was just the fluidity with the, the dancing scenes that Laura did and just just capturing and freezing a moment in, in, in the way that Grell did so was just, just very captivating. I, I loved it from the, the way her arms and her hands are moving and, and just with the dance. He creates just such a perfect visual. I, I really loved it. So I had a chance to meet Mike Grell at BorougHCon in Queens, New York City here. And yeah, I was there early in the day and there weren't too many people around. So I got a lot of time with him and he was such a nice man. He's such a gentleman. We had so much fun talking about comics and just joking around. And he told me stories about adventures with a bow and arrow and just had a great time. And what he, yeah, it was so much fun. And what he told me that the original concept of this book didn't have Two-Face in it. The Phantom character was going to be played by Batman and Bruce Wayne was going to be the love interest. So Bruce and Batman were both going to be involved, both kind of working across purposes. And he wanted to investigate the duality of Bruce and Batman and in one person and show how the two identities could exist in a person and how confusing it would be to have two identities. And I thought, wow, as good as I I want to read that one, too. Yeah, me too. Oh, that's some great insight that you got from him. I had no idea about that, Jerry. Thank you so much for getting that. Yeah. That would make a great psychological story there. Yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah, that was a pretty interesting conversation we had. I remember you sharing that online because you actually saw him on the actual 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters, and you got that special autograph in your Longbow Hunters book, I believe. I surely do. That's fantastic. So all of our uh, Warlord Worlds fans need to, to go out and follow Jerry Green and take a look at that autograph from the 30th anniversary, the day of. Yeah, yeah it was terrific. I can put that back up on Twitter when this comes out. Oh, <laughs> Very good. Great. And Chris, you might be getting to meet Mike Grell here in just a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, Mike Grell is coming to the Chicagoland area the last weekend in August for Wizard World Chicago Con. I've got my Friday already booked off and set aside for that date. I think he is going to get some special recognition. I'm looking forward to seeing him and congratulating him on the honor that he's about to get. So I, I can now say I'm joining the I've, I've met Mike Grell fan club now. So I, just, <laughs> I have not yet to meet him, and I am I'm just awe of the three of you that uh, you've had the wonderful opportunity and hearing your stories of meeting Mike Grell. Uh, you'll love it. And Jerry, you got to wear his hat, though, right? I sure did. Oh, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe it. I as many times as we've met him, and we've heard him tell about who's worn his hat, and we haven't asked, can we wear your hat? <laughs> <laughs> he was very kind, very kind. Well, I've loved chatting with you guys, and I know that listening to our show, you know we like to talk about favorite pages and panels. So I'd love to hear your favorite pages and panels. So why don't the two of you share those with us? I'm sitting here with my copy of the book. and That it has no page numbers. Yeah, yeah, it has no page numbers, (laughs) but it has about... 
20 little post-it notes of my favorite pages. <laughs> uh, Ruth, is, Ruth is holding up our post-it note mark pages <laughs> to the microphone as if you can see it. <laughs> so I think what I'll say in terms of a favorite page, I think it's page six and seven. Mm-hmm. It's Bruce riding off in the bat coach. And it's got, you know, Batman kind of over the top of Gotham. And it's got, you know, one of the bridges. It looks like the New York Brooklyn Bridge. And then Wayne Manor in the background to the upper left with the moon behind it. It's beautiful. And you can just see Batman in the back of the coach, just the shadow of him as Alfred kind of has the whip hand on the horses. It's just a stunning couple of pages. Absolutely agree with that. We love those two pages, too. They have a post-it note on them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I knew I was going to get asked this question, I thought inevitably everyone is going to share the same thing and we're going to possibly mention more things. I mean, in a book such as this where all the art is beautiful, you almost want to take the whole thing apart. But everything I wrote down had almost been previously mentioned except for one thing. And the three things that had previously mentioned was Alfred descending by lift into the cave. We mentioned Chief O'Hara's mutton chops. We mentioned Laura in the beautiful scenes with Laura and her dancing. So hopefully I'm not stealing anybody's uh, thunder by choosing Batman when he's descending on Laura's attackers in the alley. I thought that was just a great scene. So hopefully I've left the door open for Darren and Ruth when they choose their thing, and hopefully it won't be something that was previously mentioned. My apologies up front if it has. Oh, no apologies needed. I love that page. uh, That's a great sequence, that sort of double page spread. So we're looking at it. Don't worry, you didn't spoil anything. So, Ruth, do you want to share your favorite page? Okay. Pages two and three, just that whole introduction of the Batcave was striking to me. I just absolutely love all of the equipment and looking really closely at the details to see what is interwoven. There's bookcases. There's, like, chemistry equipment. Just so much to look at. I love it. Uh, I love that, too. I know um, we had all talked about that. That is a great-looking sequence. And I'll chime in. I'll just mention two pages that I really need to mention. Page 47, but it's basically when the Phantom, when Harvey Dent uh, is dancing with Laura on stage. uh, And you see that tear coming out of his injured eye. That almost makes you feel sorry for him. You know, you do feel sorry for him. Mm -hmm. And I love that page. But then the other page that I love is one that was alluded to earlier, uh, Jerry, in your summary, which is the next to the last page when Laura's racing up the stairs, leaving Bruce alone, staring at his mask. I love that parallel imagery of Laura's pearl necklace thrown down on the ground and how it mirrors the scene of Bruce's mother's necklace on the ground in the flashback earlier in the issue. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. See, we all found different things. <laughs> and I have to add and point out the bookend pages were excellent. Yeah. So they show the image of the mask, kind of similar to the Phantom of the Opera's mask. Mm-hmm. And the very last page, you see a tear on that mask, as well as the candle has burned down lower and the candle is burnt so out no. on the last page. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, great catch. Yeah. So good. Great images. Well, I, I know we've gone on and on and on about the art, but did the two of you pick out a favorite panel as well? <laughs> I've got one, and All right. it's a small one. I guess it's on page, let's see, I think it's 34. It's the panel where Laura wakes up in the bat bed. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
<laughs> just the the wings are kind of cradling her. The the bat mask looks a little menacing, but you know she's completely safe. I mean, it's so interesting. I love it. And the little like on, at the footboard, there's a little bats on one of the pedestals on the foot of the bed. I mean, it's just so so much detail in this. Uh, I love that panel too. Ruth and I were looking at that one just last night. So I'll actually let Ruth go with her favorite panel next because Ruth's favorite panel will be easily accessible. Oh, yeah. Just on the opposite page there where Laura and Batman are looking into that full-length mirror. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think that's gorgeous coloring with that and gorgeous line work. It's just really moody and effective. Mm. That's great. So, Chris, what about you? Do you have a favorite panel? You guys stole all my favorite. (laughs) There's so much to choose from. I'm going to go with something a little more subtle. There was a scene where Bruce is on the date with Laura, and in a very cute moment, Laura notices that box three was empty at curtain, and she knew that's where it was sitting. And just that little coy head tilt when she says that, and you know, when Bruce apologizes, you see this warm smile that he gives, and then you can just see the glow and just just the romance. You can just soak it all in this this, this ambiance and the romantic uh, feel for the book and this mood at that time. So. Yeah. Maybe nothing that was dynamic per se, but I just love that moment. I see what you're saying. I'm looking at it now. And she's just got a little tilt of her head with her yes. hands at her chin. Oh, yeah. Good choice. That's super. I mean, I, I love that, too, because sometimes my favorite panel will be something that is not action-packed. It's something that gives you that little bit of insight into a character. So I think that's a great one. And actually, Chris, it helps me segue into I'm going to cheat and name two favorite panels because they go together. And I counted, and we don't need to flip to them, but I, I think I counted as pages 22 and 30. But what's interesting to me, these are a couple of the Bruce and Laura on a date scene. And on page 22, in the very top left panel, the two of them are on a picnic under a tree at Wayne Manor. And then eight pages later, on the top left panel, the two of them again are on another date, and they're standing on a bridge over the water. And what I loved about these scenes is getting to see them out in the sunlight and on a date but both panels are very small. And I took that as sort of a subtle hint that these sort of happy times are very small and fleeting in Bruce's life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I sort of thought that was an interesting way for maybe Mike Grell to suggest that or hear these little tiny moments of lightness Mm -hmm. in his life. Oh, very true. They are beautiful. Just little things. Great, great girls there. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to add just in general about the panels that I love how the panel are laid out in this book and it reminds me a bit of Mike Grell's layouts in Star Slayer where the panels aren't really clearly defined. You don't have lots of boxes and rectangles and squares. Things just flow. One image might flow into the other or one image might create an outline for the next image and it makes for a great looking book in my opinion. Well, that's a great, great, great plot. Yep. Definitely. Well, gentlemen, we shared our favorite pages and panels like we do on our show, but I think the two of you do something special on your show, too. (laughs) Tell our listeners about that. Well, we talk about whether this would be something that we would recommend, and we also give it a rating. And a book like this is going to be a little tough to rate. I I realized when, as I was thinking about what I would do in terms of rating, it's so idiosyncratic. If you like this kind of thing, you are going to love this book. (laughs) And I can say, you know, I know a lot of folks prefer the modern stuff, but I just love this kind of historical Gotham kind of story. And I know that I would rate this 
very, very highly. Gosh, we use batarangs as our, our scale, and we usually do it out of five batarangs, and I think I would give this a four and a half batarangs. Okay, well, I'll counter with a five because I am a little biased. But no, to be fair, I was considering four and a half and five because I wanted so much more, but that's, you know, that I have to accept it for what it was. And yeah, this is this is a masterpiece, and I think this is something that I would recommend for a bad fan. And this is a great book to get on board with, I think, uh, any of the Elseworlds that they want to explore. Some of the Elseworlds Batman books aren't as good. Some of them are extremely violent, and some I just did not care for. But as far as an Elseworlds, and as far as a Batman story goes, this is top-notch, first-rate mm-hmm. stuff. I can't, I can't recommend it any more highly, and I would give it a five out of five. Very good. So I'll chime in because I absolutely love stories set during this period of time. I love mysteries. I love Mike Grell's art. I love the way Mike Grell merges Batman into the Phantom of the Opera mythos. So I'm sort of the same way. There's nothing here that I don't like. So I'm giving it five batarangs as well. Wow, great. I'm going to slip in, I think, with four and a half. But I have to explain my reasoning here. So I love everything about this time period. I love this bittersweet story. Mike Grell's amazing art. And I agree with Darren. Like So much of this warrants that five batarang badge. But my exception is for what's not here, and I'm marking it down just slightly because I've wanted the story to be longer. I think more pages, perhaps another issue, because I wanted more time to connect with the characters so that I could feel more sympathy for Harvey Dent, for example, maybe more of a sense of a loss when Laura leaves in the end. So I'm just wanting to say it's excellent but so good that I wanted more. So that's why I'm dinging it a little bit. You make a very valid point. I will argue with you on that. So I I think you're right. It's perfect for what's there. I think, Chris, you might have said the same phrase. It's perfect for what's there. But I can see what you're saying, that you didn't have enough time to fill that sympathy for Harvey or that loss for Laura. Okay. We'll we'll give you that, Ruth. (laughs) 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 Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on our show. Do the two of you have anything else that you want to chime in and say about Batman Mask? I would just say if you have any interest from listening to this at all, I would say pick it up because it's definitely worth a read. And I'd like to thank this opportunity once again to thank uh, Darren and Ruth and Jerry and myself on the show. We had a great time. I'm smiling from ear to ear just having a joy talking about this in this forum. I, 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 I'm, on, I'm on Darren and Ruth's podcast. I can't believe it. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> but I get to talk about my girl baby mess. This is fantastic. I, I, I am just floating right now. So thank you so much. I had a great time. Yeah. Well, we had a wonderful time having the two of you on here as well. So we've covered Batman Mask. You mentioned earlier a couple of other Batman issues that Mike Grell did. Who knows? We may have to cover those sometime in the future. Sounds good. Just Mike. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. Again, everyone check out Bat Books for Beginners and follow Chris and Jerry online. Chris and Jerry, tell everyone your Twitter handle so they can go and find you. I'm at BTO and Bat Books. And I'm at Professor Frenzy. Find them and follow them. You'll be happy you did. Thank you both again. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's confusing Should you read each 
is our coverage of Mike Grell's run on the Legion of Superheroes. Mike started his career at DC Comics with a brief run on Aquaman, followed by a long run on the Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224, and he continued to do covers for quite a while after that. Knowing there are many knowledgeable Legion fans, we invited guests onto the show to discuss these stories, and we're very excited to have these experts covering these fun issues. Joining us today are our good friends Mike Lane of the podcast Comics in the Golden Age and the upcoming KirbyCast dedicated to the comics of Jack Kirby, as well as Dr. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog, who has some special thoughts to share. And if you're a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. Their extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. We highly recommend the group, and we'll provide links to their site in our show notes, and we'll send out a big thank you to Russell Burbage from the group, who has been very supportive of this coverage. Hi, this is Mike Lane, and first of all, I want to thank Darren and Ruth very much for having me on. It's always a great pleasure and an honor to be able to help them and work with them in any way. I'm going to be covering Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 210. This issue was written by Jim Shooter and, of course, penciled and inked by Mike Grell, lettered by Ben Oda, and edited by Murray Boltonoff. On the cover, we see a man in a strange blue and red uniform with a helmet rising from beneath the ground. Lightning Lad and Phantom Girl are standing on a cliff above, and Lightning Lad is firing at the men. Superboy flies above the scene, shouting, You miss, Lightning Lad. All you blasted was a hole in the ground. This is an okay cover, not one of my favorites by Grell. The layout is good, with the man rising from the ground and the legionnaires above, but the renditions of the characters are not the best, with Lightning Lad and Superboy in positions that are a bit wonky. Anyways, the splash page is much better, with a different perspective on a very similar scene. Lightning Lad strikes an unseen figure with his lightning blast, while Phantom Girl looks on. The figure turns out to be Superboy, as we're witnessing a training exercise, which is about to be cut short by bad weather. The Legionnaires leave the scene to return to headquarters and just miss a figure rising from beneath the ground. We're told that the man is named Mike Esad and that he was a soldier in World War VI. He was participating in a battle to take Metropolis when he dived in front of other soldiers to protect them from a gamma grenade. He absorbed the full blast at the same time that he was struck by lightning. His fellow infantrymen think him dead and he is buried. Now, some 200 years later, remembering only blinding pain in a word someone once called him soldier, he walks to a nearby city and sees a sign labeled Metropolis. It's then that he also recalls his final orders to take Metropolis. Later, at the Legion Citadel, Lightning Lad and Superboy are about to leave to continue their practice now that the weather is cleared up when they're stopped by Brainiac 5. He's seen that the city of Metropolis is under attack, so the team leaves to help. They find Esad firing blasts from what would appear to be a weapon, but they can't actually see any weapon in his hands. Superboy attacks, but is quickly struck down. 
Lightning Lad finds that his powers have no effect, so Phantom Girl tries to stop him. She thinks herself safe in her phantom form, but somehow Easthead is able to stab her. The team takes the fallen Phantom Girl and Superboy back to headquarters, where Brainiac 5 has trouble figuring out her injury. At first, he can't find any wound, but then Chameleon Boy reminds him of the invisible guns that the man appeared to be using. Brainiac 5 asks Chameleon Boy to become a phantom and examine Phantom Girl, and he discovers that there is an invisible knife sticking out of her. Knowing the problem, Brainiac 5 is able to save her. The heroes recognize the weapon in Eastside's uniform as being from World War VI. Brainiac 5 theorizes that Eastside's body was somehow charged with super energy, and that when he imagines a weapon, he is able to somehow create it on some phantom plane. Okay? Brainiac 5 suspects that he must have been part of the invasion force that attacked Metropolis in 2783, so he goes back to check a detailed history of the invasion. Later, Eastside is walking near the presidential palace of the United Planets, wreaking destruction. He's about to destroy the palace when he suddenly sees the entirety of Metropolis before him destroyed. His commanding officer, Sergeant Richter, appears and congratulates Esad on his success, telling him he's a good soldier and that his mission is complete. Esad snaps to attention and for a moment, pride sweeps over him. A tear trickles down his cheek and a great weariness clouds his eye before his legs buckle and he collapses. We learn that Princess Projecta had created the illusion that Metropolis was destroyed, while Chameleon Boy personated his sergeant. Thinking his mission a success, Eset had no more purpose and he died. In the final panel, Brainiac 5 reveals that a monument was being erected in Eset's honor, as he was a dedicated soldier who threw himself in that grenade to save his friends. Okay, I love this story. First of all, the art. Mike Grell has been developing by leaps and bounds over this run. There's a lot of detail here, quite a few very dynamic shots of the characters. While the cover did not blow me away, I absolutely love the splash page of Lightning Lad. I also thought he gave Esad a very cool design, and I enjoyed the flashback scenes to World War VI. And the whole concept of World War VI was an interesting one, kind of both depressing, but at the same time, I do always like any hints of some back history that we're not necessarily aware of. Anything like that kind of adds a lot of texture to the characters and their history, so, so that was fun. The second story in this issue is The Lair of the Black Dragon, which we are told is the untold origin of the Karate Kid. The opening scene is in Metropolis, where the Karate Kid is being attacked by a group of martial artists. He dispatches most of them quickly, but when he goes to strike their boss, the man is able to grab the kid's arm, preventing the blow. The man introduces himself as Sadaharu and apologizes for the test, but says it was necessary to prove that he is Valimar, the famed Karate Kid. He explains that he needs help to kill a man, and when Val balks, he tells him that the man was his best friend and Val's father. His request still rejected, Sadaharu leaves, but Karate Kid secretly follows him all the way back to Japan. Once in Japan, Sadaharu is met by several men, who tell him their enemy remains inside something called a Nullitron Dome, and that all of their attempts to break in have failed. As night falls, Val investigates the dome, realizing that it was why he was needed to break into the dome. Val searches for a weak spot, finds it, and is able to kick his way in. There, he is welcomed by an old man he recognizes, his sensei. Sensei admits that Sadaharu did not lie, and that he was indeed the man who killed Val's father. He explains that when he was young, he was also a superhero, much like Val today. His archenemy was the brutal Black Dragon, and that after many years, the Black Dragon perished in their final battle. He explains that he took Val and secretly trained him away from the Black Dragon's followers. He kept his father's identity a secret, and gave him the maiden name of his mother, who was not Japanese, Valentina Armour, who died shortly after his birth. Their discussion is interrupted by the arrival of Saduharu, 
who inherited the Black Dragon organization. He says that he hoped to pass it along to Val when he grew up. He admits to using Val to find Sensei so he can finally take revenge, but Val intervenes, quickly dispatching Sadaharu and his men. Sensei is surprised since he's just admitting to killing Val's father, but Val tells him that while the Black Dragon may have given him life, Sensei was the one who gave him his ideals and moral values. He says that Sensei made him a force for good, which is more important than blood, and that he is his true father. This was another great story that I really loved. The idea of Val's father being a villain raised by the hero that defeated him, that's pretty original for this era, in comics at least. And the art was amazing. Grell did a great job in the fight scenes. The coloring of the Asian character's skin didn't necessarily age that well, but this was of its time, and I understand that. But nevertheless, the, the overall art was great, and this was a pretty fascinating origin story, so, so I liked it. My favorite moment art-wise, though, when Val is trying to follow the bad guys back to Japan without being noticed, his disguise is basically a, a white cape and essentially what appears to be a white cowboy hat over his regular costume. So something about that just really amused me, and I, I thought it was a great, fun design by Mike Grell. So another really, really great story in this issue. I want to close by once again thanking Darren and Ruth for having me on. It's always, it's greatly appreciated. I'm, I'm supposed to see them shortly at Baltimore Comic Con in a few weeks, and I'm super looking forward to that. They're such a wonderful couple and always fun to hang out with, and I, I'm so excited. Hope to see you guys soon. Uh, again, my name is Michael Lane. I can be found at the Comics in the Golden Age podcast. It's got a Facebook page, and it's also got a Twitter account, Comics in the GA. And I do have another show coming up in the near future called The Kirby Cast, which is going to be covering the Bronze Age comics of Jack Kirby, starting with the Fourth World books, and specifically Jimmy Olsen for a few issues and going straight into the Fourth World books that he did there, and following him through his return to Marvel in the late 70s, and some of his independent work like Silver Star and such. So hasn't started yet, but should be starting pretty soon. And there's going to be a blog accompanying that called the thekirbycastblogspot.com. So check me out there. And with that again, thank you both Darren and Ruth, and goodbye. Hello, Darren and Ruth. It's Dr. Ange from the blog Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, as well as one of the Legion of Superbloggers. And I'm thrilled to be joining you again on Warlord Worlds to give a review of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 211, an issue which includes two stories with Mike Grellart, one written by Legion legend Jim Shooter, and another by Carrie Bates. When you first announced you would be covering these issues on your podcast, I really jumped at the chance to review this issue in particular, because I consider it my first comic book ever. So my review might be a touch longer than usual because I'm emotionally invested in this comic. I was an early reader, and to promote my reading, my parents and extended family would buy me comic books. And many of the first comics that I read were bought at yard sales we went to, and it just so happens that a bunch of them turned out to be Legion books. So the books that I read first are actually books that came out in the early 70s, a few years older when I first got them. I actually still have this issue in my collection, completely tattered, the cover detached. It really is a well-loved comic. And when you hear the first story you'll see how this is actually a pretty weird comic for a six-year-old to be reading. That first story, by Jim Shooter and Mike Grell, is called Ultimate Revenge, and focuses on Element Lad. We start out with a splash page looking up at Jan Ara, Element Lad, holding a smoking gun over what seems to be a dead man. His teammates scream that Jan has killed this man and therefore will be expelled from the Legion. The actual story starts on The Haven, 
a man-made world hidden from radar and other detecting devices where outlaws can hide. One criminal, the space pirate Roxas, has arrived, and he's been on the run and been hiding in the last place anyone would look for him before this, but he couldn't stand hiding out in that place any longer. The Legion discovers the Haven, and Element Lad, Starboy, Chemical King, and Light Lass all make quick work of the fugitives there, except for Roxas, who is able to escape. However, just prior to flying off, Element Lad spies Roxas's face and is shocked. Back at the headquarters, Element Lad tells Starboy his origin. He talks of how Roxas actually went to Trom to try to force the transmuters there to create precious elements for him, and when they refused, he killed them all. Only Element Lad escaped, eventually helping the Legion capture Roxas. Element Lad is the only surviving Traumite. After a bit of sleuthing, the Legion realizes that Roxas was on the Haven and that Element Lad is off tracking him. That trail actually leads to Trom. Wielding a laser pistol, Element Lad vows revenge, screaming for Roxas to show himself. Oddly enough, Roxas does, simply walking out into the open. The Legion arrives and try to convince Jan not to kill Roxas, including Starboy, who was once expelled for killing a man. There's actually a nice flashback recounting that story. But before anyone can stop him, Element Lad says that he resigns and blasts Roxas. Roxas falls to the ground apparently dead. Almost immediately, Element Lad regrets his decision. But then, Roxas turns out to be alive. It turns out that Chemical King had sped up the reaction in the pistol battery, draining its power and reducing it to basically a flashlight. He wanted to let Jan pull the trigger so that Element Lad would know what it felt like to be a killer and therefore would regret it and then reject that idea. Interestingly enough, Roxas then pleads for the Legion to kill him. That is why he walked out into the open. He was hoping Element Lad would kill him. In his mind, he is haunted by the ghosts of the Traumites. He had actually hidden on the planet Trom for that year that he was missing, and he had been tormented by visions ever since. Element Lad sneers that letting Roxas live this horror is the ultimate revenge. Hence the title. Imagine how crazy this was for me as a little kid to be reading this. A hero who wants to kill? A discussion on the chemical reactions of batteries? A friend who would allow a hero to take the killing shot to teach him a lesson? A man haunted by genocide begging to be killed? No wonder I'm as messed up as I am. On the next story, the title is The Legion's Lost Home, and it is by Carrie Bates and Mike Grell. We open with the original Legion headquarters, that upside-down rocket, being taken away by a tractor beam ship as a new headquarters is going to be built. The old building is thrown in the Canaveral Graveyard, a place for derelict spacecraft to be junked. In that junkyard, Cosmic Boy and Shadowlass arrive. They ask the Watchmen if they can enter the old headquarters, as a weapon from the Legion arsenal is missing and they're wondering if it's still there. The two Legionnaires walk through the halls, avoiding some still-working defenses, but instead of heading to the arsenal room, they go into a prison cell, where they find a stashed Pyram jewel, a flawless and priceless gem. Before leaving, though, they are captured by a man who can petrify himself, who turns out to be Stoneboy, Chlorophyll Kid, and Fire Lad, the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Turns out this isn't Cosmic Boy and Shadowlass, but thieves in costume who had once been held in the headquarters and had hidden the gem there. 
it turns out that the Legion has given the subs this old headquarters for them to use from now on, and the subs were there to claim the headquarters. This is a fun and quick story introducing the reader to three of the substitute heroes. I might also add that the USS Enterprise makes a cameo in that Canaveral graveyard. And, interestingly enough, the unmasked female thief looks a bit like Mariah from Warlord, so you should really check the art out. I've been talking a lot here, so I'll only bring up two of my favorite panels in the issue. One is the second-to-last panel on page 12, where a crying, kneeling Roxas is surrounded by the ghosts of Trom. It's really a haunting image. The other is the top panel on page 6 of the second story. Here, Fire Lad has used his flame breath to heat up the laser pistol that the Cosmic Boy Thief is carrying, forcing the crook to drop it. But as a kid, I really had to stare at this panel to figure out exactly what was going on. I didn't know that Fire Lad's power was to breathe fire. And the gun itself is an odd shape. It almost looks like a pair of jaws. It's surrounded by the fire of his breath. So initially, I thought that maybe Fire Lad could make solid shapes out of his flame breath, sort of like Green Lantern with his ring. It's only after learning more about the substitute hero's powers did I understand the layout that he's actually blasting the gun from the thief's hand. As a result, this panel really sticks in my memory. I can remember being a kid, looking at it over and over, trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Anyways, that's my coverage of Legion of Superheroes number 211, the book that I consider to be my first comic book ever. Once again, I have to thank you for letting me be on the show so that I can talk about this sentimental favorite. And I hope you'll accept my apology for the length of this, as really I was starting to wax poetic. Next up is listener feedback, where we share emails and other comments we've received since last time. We appreciate all of the interaction on social media. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch with us. Mike Lane of Comics in the Golden Age let us know that the Green Arrow Warlord crossover issues were his first introduction to the Warlord when he first read them. Clinton Robeson said, I never realized they actually had a crossover. That's pretty awesome. Travis Morgan just seems odd wearing a shirt. We gave that some thought and decided... He's so used to the constant sunlight and heat as guitarist that he was probably freezing in Seattle. Brian Mulvey wrote, I just love Mike Grell's fabulous sense of humor with these great Green Arrow issues. Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners wrote, Just listened and read along. So fun. Especially enjoyed the favorite pages and panel segment. So many great ones to choose from. Mark Sweeney of the podcast and blog I'm the Gun did a fun promo for us saying, Worlds collide in a Green Arrow segment on the latest Warlord Worlds. Social Justice Warrior commented, I love Mike Grell's run on Ollie's comics. He really brought the grit into Ollie's world. Matthew Souza wrote, I think Mike Grell is an amazing author. Every Green Arrow volume of his is so thoughtful and exciting. Great storyteller. The Geekish cast wrote, That was a great crossover. I read The Longbow Hunters as a teen. It was the book that changed comics for me. Grell's run on Green Arrow is still my favorite of all time. And he mentioned that his pal Paul gave him a sketch drawn by Mike Grell at the San Diego Comic-Con. We got some great insider information about these issues from Jerry McMullen of the Worst Comics Podcast Ever. He wrote, When I hosted a panel with Mike Grell last year, I asked him about those two issues of Green Arrow and if he had been wanting to have a crossover with Warlord. He was actually not planning on doing it, but it was at the request of artist Dan Jurgens that the story happened. That was really interesting to learn, Jerry. Thanks for letting us know. 
Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog remarked how great it was hearing his friend and Legion blog collaborator Martin Gray talk about the Legion on this episode. As we all know, Ange is a big Legion fan, so we were excited that Ange had a chance to talk more about the Legion of Superheroes with Professor Allen on the Quarterbin podcast. Check it out on episode 100, part 2. And we send out special thanks to the Splash Pod, Martin Gray of Too Dangerous for a Girl, Slang Word Resists, and Agent of the Bat for their kind remarks and shoutouts about our last episode. Leslie Trigg was a prize winner last time, and he dropped a note saying he is so glad to know there are other Mike Grell and Warlord fans out there. Leslie took some time to share about his introduction to Mike Grell and the Warlord. He wrote, I've been a fan of Mike Grell and the Warlord since my preschool days. I remember being in kindergarten when our neighbor across the street gave me some of her son's old comics. In that stack of comics was Warlord number six, and I fell in love. The action around the statue and train that takes him away to a strange world, this was mind-blowing for my five-year-old self, whose comics were only Spider-Man and Batman. This love of Warlord was sealed with DC's Blue Ribbon Digest number 10, The Demos Saga. Seeing Morgan's son grow up from baby to adult, to fight and die in his father's arms, has had an impact on what comics can do in storytelling. The Demos Saga would make a great plot for a movie. Mike Tipton saw the Warlord Green Arrow crossover cover and exclaimed, I had that comic! I loved Warlord and Green Arrow both. Travis Morgan was one of my earliest comic book heroes. If ever a DC comic needed to be made into a movie, the Warlord would be it. And Sam Elliott from 20 years ago would have been a great fit. Then Jeff Messer chimed in to say he's working with Mike Grell on another of his creations, hoping to get it made into a movie. And oddly enough, or not, Sam Elliott is on the cast wish list for the role of Sonny in a John Sable movie. In fact, we can't see anyone but him in the role, said Jeff. Stay tuned. Thanks to Jamie Ray for tagging us to make sure we saw Stephen D'Souza's note on Twitter. Stephen is a big screenwriter for Hollywood and wrote such films as Die Hard and Judge Dredd. Stephen is thankful for Mike Grell giving him some input on a draft screenplay adaptation of John Sable Freelance. That would have been great. Mike Tamaris wrote, I'm saving up to buy the Grail run digitally because I sold all my originals, and I can't wait for a John Sable action figure. That would be great. Steve Bridge calls Mike a fantastic guy and artist, and let us know he saw Mike at a con and got a John Sable head sketch a couple of years back. Noworth Comics said, Mike Grail's influence is plain in my own artwork, and John Sable is on my evergreen reread list. We had a nice exchange with Grant Richter about John Sable's battle mask that he paints on and how it works as both camouflage and intimidation. Ben Avery of the podcast Strangers and Aliens started listening to Warlord Worlds recently and wrote in to say, I'm listening to episode three. This isn't the Star Slayer I read. Looks like I have an issue to track down. We learned that Ben has the original series, the original printings even, of the initial six-issue storyline before Mike Grell expanded it to an eight-issue director's cut in the mid-1990s. And a big thank you to NetHead for alerting us to a 50% off sale for the Star Slayer trade at Comixology. We hope everyone was able to take advantage of that and pick up the new collection from Dark Horse. Peter Worrell wrote to say he's grateful to find Warlord Worlds. You've just made my day. In the savage world of Skatara's life is a constant struggle for survival. Long live Travis Morgan. I hope you enjoy the podcast, Peter. John Holloway of the Worst Comic Podcast Ever shared a photo of the cover of the Warlord issue number 64, titled Else Win, which is a great title and a great cover. Thanks, John. For a Throwback Thursday post, we shared a photo of the Warlord issue 67. Ron Randall, the creator of Trekker, noticed and called it a cool, classic, iconic Greek cover. 
He also mentioned that the issue contains the first episode of the backup feature, The Barren Earth, that he worked on with scriptwriter Gary Cohn. It ran for two years as a backup, followed by a miniseries as well. Ron said he still has a great fondness for that project. We are certainly fans of The Barren Earth, and we plan to cover it on our Trekker Talk podcast in the future. And in more Ron Randall-related Warlord news, a fan at Rose City Comic Con brought in an original two-page spread that Ron Randall drew for the Warlord years ago. Ron smiled as he commented that it was full of youthful enthusiasm and mistakes. And now we have some news from Mike Grell's appearance at San Diego Comic-Con. Mike let us know that he kicked off San Diego Comic-Con by attending an outdoor party for DC Comics, where he could see the bat signal shining bright in the sky. He participated in a special signing event for the Hero Initiative and celebrated the special 30th anniversary of the Longbow Hunters at the con. Mike had even more to celebrate during the weekend because that's when he learned he had been selected for the Wizard World Hall of Legends, and on top of that, he learned he had been named to the Overstreet Hall of Fame. Mike Grell visited with lots of great fans and people in the comics industry in San Diego, and he shared how happy he was when Dennis Cowan stopped by his table. It was Dennis, along with Michael Davis, who launched Milestone Comics decades ago. And Mike Grell was interviewed on a panel by Derek Maki of Coolwater Productions. We'll share a link to the audio in our show notes so you can listen in and learn more about his career, including a story about a brutal deadline and working too long without sleep. And there's a fun Warlord Easter egg story. Ken Hommel of Too Close to the TV shared some photos he took at San Diego Comic-Con this year. There was a terrific photo of Mike Grell along with Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, and Joe Staten. Richard Cladwell shared, I ran into Mike Grell who was kind enough to shake my hand and listen to my stories at San Diego Comic-Con. Those who know, understand. Yes, Mike is a great man who loves talking to his fans. And now moving from San Diego to Chicago, here's some more news Mike Grell shared on his website. I had the honor of being inducted into the Wizard World Hall of Legends in Chicago. My old pal and editor Mike Gold was on hand to make it all the more special. I want to thank all of my fans, friends, and family who made it possible, especially mom and dad who had the sense to live in an area where we wouldn't see one of those newfangled television contraptions until I was eight, and we didn't get one until I was 11. In the meantime, we had movies, comic books, newspaper comic strips, and radio, which in those days was like TV without pictures. You had to supply your own. We learned to use our imagination and were given the freedom to use it. After 44 years in comics, I hardly feel like I've worked a day in my life. Those were beautiful memories from Mike. Our friend Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners was fortunate to see Mike Grell at Wizard World in Chicago, and Chris had been listening to our show closely and knew that we loved the variant cover of Green Arrow and Black Canary, and he generously picked it up for us from Mike. Thank you, Chris. The awards Mike received generated lots of excitement and congratulation from fans on social media, including Alan Wright of Bold Outlaw, Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Podcast, Chris Sheehan from the Cosmic Treadmill, Simon Barre Brisbois, Brian Mulvey, Joe Crawford, and Richard Gray from RealBits.com, and many, many more. It was great to see how happy Mike's fans were. And speaking of Richard Gray, we recently picked up his excellent book titled Moving Target. In it, he devotes an entire chapter of the book to Mike Grell. The book takes a look at Green Arrow from his Golden Age origins to present day. It includes interviews with Neil Adams, Chuck Dixon, Phil Hester, Brad Meltzer, and Jeff Lemire. We'll include a link where you can learn more about the book. Victor Lanza shared a post of the Green Lantern Green Arrow cover by Mike Grell, saying it is now his new wallpaper. Aaron Meyer let us know he recently got an amazing ROM commission by Mike Grell, and it's terrific. Harveytography shared some great photos of Mike Grell drawing sketches at a comic shop where he was able to meet him. 
Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader shared a photo of his current reading at the time, and there must have been a dozen warlords in the display. So many Mike Grell fans liked it and shared it online. Great, Joe. Davide Mana shared that a friend gave him a big stack of warlord comics that made him very happy. So he did a great post about Warlord that we'll add to the show notes. We have a shout-out to share from Three Alarm Comics in Mississippi. They hosted Mike Grell for a signing event and posted a great video of Mike Grell drawing Torin from Star Slayer. We'll include a link to their page so you can check it out, too. We had a laugh when Daniel Ford posted a photo of a huge collection of Green Arrow action figures, saying, Go on, guess who my favorite superhero is. I'll give you three tries. I don't know if anyone figured it out but my favorite guesses were the Warlord and Robin Hood. Michael Allen Carlyle at the fun blog The Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu shared a great photo of a Warlord color commission that he spotted at the website The World of Gold, Silver, and Bronze Age Heroes. The piece includes the Warlord, Shakira, Tara, and Mariah. It's excellent. Darren, but not my Darren, he spells his name differently, of the blog The Red Hooded Outlaw, dedicated to Jason Todd, just discovered our three podcasts and wrote to let us know he had subscribed to all three of our shows on the Rad Adventures Network. Thank you, Darren. Hope you enjoy the shows. We were happy to learn Simon Bari Brisbois attended his very first convention. It was the Montreal Comic Con, and he called it one of the best weekends ever. I must say, Simon got his convention off to a terrific start. On the very first day, he met John Rhys Davies and got him to sign his 1965 edition of The Lord of the Rings, and he had a great chat with him. Later, he had his photo taken with Adrian Barbeau, who's a favorite actress of ours, and he met several comic artists, including Neil Adams, and got to sit in an official Batmobile. And as a fan of The Warlord, he was lucky to pick up several issues of that series while he was there. This summer, our friend Lori Sutton, who is a former comic editor and currently writes fun You Choose Adventure books, attended Florida Supercon to see her Legion of Superheroes pals, Jim Shooter and Keith Giffen. Long live the Legion! She also shared that she loves the name of Dinah's shop, Sherwood Florist, because it has extra meaning for her, because her middle name is Sherwood. I love that, Lori. Chris Mounts named a recent episode of Paul Spataro's Is It Jaws as a top podcast of the week, and we were very happy that it was an episode with us as guests. He said Paul, Ruth, and Darren engage in some social banditry and swashbuckling with the adventures of Robin Hood on Is It Jaws. Thank you, Chris. And we'll wrap up our feedback section with some fun recent visits with friends. We were fortunate that Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network drove through our area on a trip this summer. He stopped by to meet up with us and fellow comic fan Keith G. Baker. The good professor brought all of us some comics, and we had fun browsing around a local used bookshop and taking and sharing photos. It was a great time. Then a couple of weeks later, the irredeemable shag of the Fire & Water Podcast Network was in town on a business trip and he took the time to meet up with us and Keith G. Baker at a local comic shop. I was fascinated to see two big-time Firestorm fans together in the same room. Their friendship goes way back thanks to that character. We had fun talking comics and conventions over dinner, and of course enjoyed some ice cream as well. And I learned that the Irredeemable Shag and Ruth had milkshakes together earlier that afternoon. I would almost be jealous, but I know I can trust Ruth, even though I might not be able to say the same thing about Shag. Oh, he was a perfect gentleman. Come on, if you're going to tell a lie, it should at least sound slightly believable. <laughs> Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who liked or shared our Facebook or Tumblr pages or retweeted our tweets. If we miss a name, just let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. 
If that happens, let us know, and we'll be happy to correct that next time as well. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog, Ashford from the Ride On Network featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey, Ben Avery of the Strangers and Aliens podcast, Bill Beer of Too Old, Too New podcast, Brian Mulvey, Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Mounts, Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast and the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Cullen Stapleton from the Worst Comics podcast ever, Derek William Crabb of the Fan Holes podcast and History of Comics on Film, Darren Murphy of the Red Hooded Outlaw blog, Diablo Frank of the Outlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog and Diana Prince Wonder Woman, Doug Zawija of the Doom Patrol blog My Greatest Adventure 80 and writer for Comicosity, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Eric Mannix of Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, The Geekish Cast, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks, Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners and reviewer at the Batman Universe, Grant Richter of the blog Avatar of the Green about Swamp Thing, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Harvey Tography, the irredeemable shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, also known as Firestorm Fan, Jamie Ray, Jay Jones of the Silver and Gold Podcast, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast, Jerry McMullen from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, Joe Crawford of the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader, John Baker, John Holloway of the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Keith G. Baker, Ken Hommel, Laurel Phillips, a.k.a. Mountainflower, Lori Sutton, former DC editor and our DragonCon friend, Leslie Trigg, Longbox Crusade podcast with Pat and Jared, Mark Adams of Mark's Mess podcast, Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun blog and podcast and comics couplets, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Michael Carlisle of the blog Crapbox Son of Cthulhu, Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age, Michael Souza, Mike Tempton, Mike Tamaras, Nethead, No Earth Comics, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Peter Worrell, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Reggie Hancock of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Richard Gray, author of Moving Target, Rolled Spine Podcast, Brian Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Social Justice Warrior Ollie Queen, Splash Podcast, Tim Wallace of the Cord Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the podcast Beetlemania, Tony Greenall, Victor Lanza, and Wendy Friedman of the podcast Double Page Spread. Before we wrap up, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. If you want to contact us directly, please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can also visit warlordworlds.com for links to our social media pages. You can listen to our show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are available at warlordworlds.podbean.com. You'll also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about the 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. 
Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Mm-hmm.